to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, co-founder and director of Berlin-based gallery Jarvis Dooney. In today's episode, I'm speaking with April Gertler, one of the hardest working people in Berlin's art scene, who's probably best known as the founder of Picture Berlin, an international peer-to-peer knowledge exchange residency program which in 2019 celebrated its 10th anniversary. As an artist in her own right, April talks about what influence running a residency has had on her own artistic practice, which evolved from photographic collage to research-based, performative, social practice-oriented work. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, be sure to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. And I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with April Gatler. So you'd been in Berlin at least five years at that time. No, because I came to Berlin in 2005 and I started Picture Berlin in 2009. 2009, okay. Yeah. How did you decide to move to Berlin? I'm from California mm-hmm. and I did my graduate work at Bard College in Annandale, which is north of New York City. It's a summer only program, so it's three summers for eight weeks. And they had an exchange program with the Städelschule, which is a very small art school in Frankfurt on Main. And I was the first person to do the exchange. So I applied and I was actually born in Hessen. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it was pretty interesting for me to kind of go back to that region. And not that I remember it because I left them with my parents when I was three, but it was interesting. I was in this art school for a semester, an academic semester. And then I went back to Bard and finished my program and thought about what the next step would be. I'd been in the Bay Area for many, many years. And I thought, I don't know if I really want to move to New York City because it seemed so, so stressful and so hard to make money. And so I thought, I'm going to move to Frankfurt initially. So I moved to Frankfurt in 2003 and was waiting and trying to find a way to come to Berlin. I That was my goal. That and, was always your goal. Yeah. Okay. I knew people. I knew more people, of course, in Frankfurt than I did in Berlin. But then I got a residency through a gallery that doesn't exist anymore. They gave me an apartment in Prenzlauer Berg, really shitty part of Prenzlauer Berg. <laughs> so I moved here in February February 1st, 2005. What were you doing prior to that in the US? After I graduated from art school, I started teaching photography at a private high school, photography and bookmaking. And then three years later, I applied to graduate school. So I got my degree at California College of the Arts. I studied with Larry Sultan and Jim Goldberg. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. They had a major influence on my life. And then I became a studio assistant for both of them in their studios simultaneously. That was really amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so then when you eventually made it to Berlin, were you practicing as an artist? Yeah, I came um, via this residency Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in the idea of what Berlin was. I knew two people here when I came. What was interesting about it was the anticipation of coming. So before I left, I went back to the States and I was telling people I'm moving to Berlin. And people's response at that time was, wow, what? Oh, Berlin. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Berlin. Oh, it's so amazing. And so I started asking people. Uh, oh, 
do you know something about it? Have you been there? Have you? Do you have recommendations for me? Have places to go? No, no, I've never been there. <laughs> and this was sort of the repeat over and over again. And so that kind of set the stage for the first project I did in Berlin, which was called Picturing Berlin. Ah, uh, okay. That's where the name Picture Berlin came from. And Picturing Berlin was about the idea of what Berlin was to other people. Mm-hmm. So I collaborated. I invited as many people as I could to send me pictures of what they imagined Berlin to be, but from their hometown. Oh, okay. So what, photographs or drawings? Photographs, photographs. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had this incredible collection of photographs Mm -hmm. of people's idea of what Berlin was. And then I uh, put together a slideshow and that was the, one of the works that I showed during that residency. Yeah. What was the contrast like, the perception to the reality? Of course not the same. I mean, <laughs> it was hard for me to also get a grip on what Berlin was at that time because it was 2005. It was when we had real winters. It was gray for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. And I couldn't understand the lay of the land, if you will. As you know, there's nothing marked on the streets. You don't know where to go necessarily. Things are quite hidden. You have to go to the seventh Hinterhof to find something. So it was really hard to kind of find my way and understand it. And people's perceptions were, of course, about the music scene and about the clubbing scene and, of course, the art scene, but people didn't really know what that even meant. And so it was very superficial and hard to tap into. Yeah. So that was your main project you did during the residency. So after that, did you... Because I always wonder how it is when you start as an artist, I suppose, to establish yourself and to find out what it is that you want to do and how to make that happen, especially in a new city. Because although you said you were born in Hessen, then when you were three, you went to the US. So are your parents German? My father is Hungarian and my mother was Dutch. Okay. But did you grow up speaking multiple languages? No, my parents speak multiple languages, (laughs) but no, only spoke English. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I know from my experience, I don't know how many years, 12 years or 13 years ago since arriving here, it was quite different then compared to now. Yes. If you didn't speak any German, like you, it was really a must. You had to speak German. Yes. 10 years prior to that, in 2003, 2005, it would have been even more difficult. How was it for you even just navigating the bureaucracy and finding an apartment and getting settled? Like that would have been totally different to now. It was really, really hard. I was fortunate. Um, One of the two friends I had, there was an availability of a room in her vege. And I went to art school with her in California. Oh, perfect. So she said, oh, come and just live with me Mm -hmm. and my roommate. So I didn't have to navigate the whole thing. (laughs) And I lived there for a few years. And then I I moved out in 2007. And that was still the time when it was super easy to find a flat. I mean, I found my second flat by finding an advert in our organic grocery store, Mm -hmm. like a little leaflet thing. And I pulled a tab off with a phone number. I called this woman and she's like, oh, yeah, come by. You know, she's like, oh, do you want it? Because you can have it. You're the only person who's come to look at it. So, you know, you can you can move in tomorrow because I really need to go. Like, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's unheard of now. Isn't Those it? were the days, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was really hard. My German really was not very good. I mean, I really, really struggled with the bureaucracy of it all. And I was up for um, an unlimited visa. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Ausländerbehörde and I could speak enough German to navigate it on my own. So I did that. 
I mean, things about German bureaucracy that I just didn't understand. I had been registered in Frankfurt with my visa there, but I didn't know I had to re-register here. So there were a lot of complications just getting my visa. I got it, which was great, but my paperwork had to be sent from Frankfurt and then I got put on hold and, you know, all these layers of complications that everyone has to navigate. And the idea that your tax ID number changes when you move. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've only been in the same place with a tax number, but I didn't, well, know, that it, I didn't yeah. know that it changed. It, it changes. It also, of course, changes from state to state. Mm-hmm. I thought I could have the same tax accountant from Frankfurt when I moved here. And he said, oh, absolutely not. You have to find yourself a new accountant. It's like, oh, no. Oh, gosh. Okay. So these things, yeah. they were hard. I suppose adjusting to a new country and a new culture. How did that then impact your artistic practice? Because that can't not have had an influence. I mean, artists typically react to their surroundings. So you've got completely new surroundings, not just geographically, but also culturally and linguistically as well. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I was continuing to make photographs and I was making collages, which I've always done the collage work on the side. I entered into the European photo scene. I tried at least, and I was showing in different festivals and doing portfolio reviews in different places and realizing that in a lot of ways, I found that the photo scene wasn't as progressive as it was in the States, that the dialogue wasn't as advanced in terms of the concept of what art photography could be or a play with photography. I had a lot of portfolio review, not a lot, I had a few portfolio reviewers look at my work and say, I don't understand what you're doing. This makes no sense to me. I don't get it. And for me, I was trying to mix collage and photography and playing and making very abstract juxtapositions. And looking back on that work, I think, yeah, some of it didn't work, but I think that they just couldn't understand because they were so fixated on this traditional concept of what photography Mm -hmm. was for them. And I realized at a certain point I had to move away from the photo scene because my work was not fitting that groove. My work has evolved and shifted in a lot of ways and it it doesn't fit boxes in a way. Because Peg, I think, said when she went to Wuj in, maybe that was 2005, that's where she said she met you as well. We met in Bulgaria, but... Oh, you met in Bulgaria? Yeah. Oh, no, she was part of the Wuj Festival yeah. and she was doing reviews in Bulgaria. Yes. Okay. Yes. So was that still also quite conservative at the time in terms of what people were showing as photography? It was Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> Black and white was the thing. I was shooting medium format color, analog, and people were shooting color. Okay, but this aesthetic that you still see, the sort of Agatha, mm-hmm. kind of grainy, heavy contrast photo, staying true to the photographic medium, as it were, was very present yeah, and okay. was not my shtick. And I felt like, oh, God, people, can't we move beyond this and have more conversations that envelop bigger ideas about what the image can be? I didn't see that really happening at that time. Okay. So when you came to that realization that photography was a bit too boxed into a certain aesthetic, well, how did you step outside of that? I realized that more and more through Picture Berlin. I mean, I started Picture Berlin as a specifically thinking that it would be a great platform. Photography would be a great platform to use as a as a medium in terms of a conversational jumping off point for the residency program. Okay, so this wasn't Picture Berlin, the project that you made during the residency? No, this was really Picture Berlin, the residency that I started in 2009. And I started it with the intention of working with artists who were working with photography 
specifically. And it was then channeled into the photography world as well, became known as a photography residency. That's how I knew it initially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Midway, I think maybe even five years in, that was where it clicked with me. Like, okay, there are people who are working in other mediums who actually want to do this residency. And why not? Why do I have to be so narrowly focused? And in fact, having a bigger conversation helps the artists who are involved in the program and also helps me think about my own work. And so through the conversations I was having with the resident artists and the curators who I was inviting to do different projects within the programming, I realized, oh, this is so clearly I need to move out of this photography capsule and move beyond. I think out of Picture Berlin, my work really changed to be much more social practice oriented, which is more how I define my work now. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you have the idea to have a residency or evolved into a residency? I mean, part of it goes back to this enthusiasm that my friends and colleagues had for me moving to Berlin and mm-hmm. oh this is so exciting that you're moving there and and then I thought oh rent is cheap I'm going to find an apartment where I can have an extra room and I'll invite a friend and have them come and share my experience with me or I'll sh- I'll introduce them to people and maybe I can help them get a show it seems like it would be easy to do that mm-hmm. that was my initial thought And then I just started thinking more and more about it. And I had many, many, many conversations. I spent a year researching and thinking about what I could do, what format it would take, how it would look. And it was also very influenced by my experience at BARD, this eight-week program. And I pulled different elements from that program and put them into Picture Berlin, like the portfolio reviews, like the weekly reviews that we would do in the beginning of the program, when I started the program. Yeah. So these different elements came in and that kind of wove also into my personal practice like how can I morph I was realizing that I was also enjoying the conversation so much more than being isolated in my studio and editing photographs and working on photographs sequencing and shooting and then putting my work up into an exhibition that just felt so flat to me it felt so dead and I wanted the dialogue so much and that wasn't happening. And with Picture Berlin, there was a dialogue happening in a way that felt really exciting. Yeah. Were there many other residencies in Berlin at the time? I know now there are a lot and I guess it's difficult to navigate what's a good residency, what one should you recommend to people. And even if I compare my experience with residencies, they're often quite, let's say, passive for want of a better word. I guess the concept of a lot of residencies is that they provide you time and space to work on your practice. Whereas with Picture Berlin, I feel that it's very interactive and a lot of it is to do with engaging with the community, the people within the group, but also within Berlin and going to places, going to galleries, going to studios, watching presentations, getting feedback and getting information from every direction, pouring that back into your work. I guess at the time you were of anywhere else or was it mostly just from your experience at Bard? Yes, to a lot of the things you said just now. I mean, I had done a few residencies myself during my program at Bard and I had done this kind of traditional concept of a residency where you get a space, it's quiet, you can work on your work and no one's interrupting you. That's a traditional concept of what a residency is. And that is the majority of what most residencies are. This idea of you're given a space, you're given a key, this is your space for this period of time, and you're meant to work Mm. on your work. I think that concept works really well if you're in a secluded place the woods or countryside or a place that doesn't have a lot of stimulus. Yeah. Because 
I was so fascinated and continue to be fascinated with this city. And I think this city has so much to offer. Just the streets themselves are talking because yeah. of the history and the memories that are embedded within the streets and the walls and the everything. I felt that it wouldn't do anyone justice to create a residency that didn't engage with the city around us. And I think that because there's no manual to be an artist. There's no guide. <laughs> we have nothing to help us understand how do you form a practice? How do you understand what it means when someone critiques your work? How does it inform your own studio when you see somebody else organize their studio? Mm -hmm. All of these things, I think, are so valuable, especially for a younger artist. It actually doesn't even matter where you are in your practice. I think any of this stuff can support one's practice so incredibly well and give you new perspective on where you are with your own practice. I felt it imperative to engage with the city. And again, my own interest in wanting to have a dialogue, not only with the incoming residents, but with people in the community. And finally being able to say, hey, Michael, I know you're running this gallery and I really enjoy what you're doing. Can you come and be a participant in this program and share your knowledge with these incoming residents? And having that conversation and forming a connection with you and with other people who are running spaces or who are curating exhibitions or who are practicing artists, that is, for me, what has helped to inherently build this community of Picture Berlin, but also help support the incoming artists in filling up their empty suitcase when they come with ideas and thoughts and interests. And that has been incredibly satisfying to have that dialogue. Yeah. When I looked at the different guests that you have, if I look at the different people yeah. that you've brought in over the years, yeah. most of the time you bring in new people each time. I so try. You have a, yeah, I try. Yeah. Like it's pretty rare. And if people do come back, it's after a few years. Right. But in most cases, it's evolving all the time. I guess from that core group of people that are helping facilitate the course, yeah. they're then helping grow that component of it as well. So it's not just there's new residents each time. There's new people supporting the actual program as well. Exactly. Was that a conscious decision rather Absolutely. than saying, let's have a faculty and we have the same people year after year? Absolutely. It was a conscious decision to continuously work with new people. Part of it is my own interest in and understanding and learning about people's practices in the city and meeting people. And also it connects to other projects I do like Zontag with Adrienne Gisa. Through Zontag as a separate project, I've met so many now we've worked with over 60 artists in that project and I've invited many of those artists to then participate in Picture Berlin. So that bridge has been really wonderful to continuously cross back and forth. But I think part of my um, challenge for myself is keeping myself interested. Mm -hmm. I always feel that if I'm not interested, that people will feel my lack of interest and I get bored quickly. So to keep things dynamic for myself, I like to change things up all the time. Yeah. And I'm the type of person who doesn't want to walk down the same street every day. I need to change my route all the time. So I really enjoy meeting new people and incorporating people that I meet into the programming. And it's also about creating an ecosystem, if you will, of the incoming residents and the faculty, mm -hmm. if you want to call them faculty. Yeah, um, I can't think of another word. What yeah, you call faculty them. is what I actually call so the chosen faculty or the invited faculty for that summer mm -hmm. or that year or that session, actually, because it's evolved now so much into very specific and different sessions. It's just been really exciting yeah. in that way.
How has it changed over the years? Because you was last year the 10th anniversary? 10th anniversary. Yeah. It started off as a four-week program with a show at the beginning and a show at the end. And it was so stressful for the incoming residents or for the residents. They struggled a lot with not having enough time to make work in parallel with all of the meetings and the reviews and the visit to the different cultural institutions in the city. It was too much for them. Mm -hmm. So I always do a roundtable with the residents at the end of the session and ask them how they think the program can change. And based on those suggestions, I make changes to the program every year. So it's very, I guess, user driven in a way, you could say. And the suggestion was always make it longer, make it longer. So I started making it longer. It evolved into a seven week program. And then at a certain point, I felt that I wanted to do a shorter program because I felt that there was something hindering or I could see that because people work at such different paces, I could imagine that for some people it would be better to not have the pressure of having a show at the end mm -hmm. and actually use this time to meet as many people as they could and actually understand the lay of the land of this city and of this cultural center in Europe. So then I started creating 10-day programs and I started the 10-day structure in 2015, just doing fall sessions, 10-day fall sessions. Ah, so these were different times of the year. When did the main one take place? Summer. So, so that was in summer and then you had autumn and spring or fall. I just had a fall session. My intent was to do a summer session. I didn't get that far. Then last year, we did a festival that was called Interiors to Being that worked with alumni and faculty, artists, and curators to create this huge festival in the month of July. And now the program has shifted gears again. And now my intent is to work with a different artist or curator for every session mm -hmm. and focus it around a theme. So this year... If the pandemic hadn't hit, <laughs> we we have pushed the sessions actually to September. Oh, okay. So we're so hoping plan, we can yeah. still do them. And we actually have incoming residents that have already been accepted into the program, although we still have slots available. For those both sessions, one is working with Pauline Dutrelingui, mm -hmm. and she and I have collaborated on creating a session called Reimagining Wanders that's about artists who work with an activist approach. And it's comprised of four intensive workshops mixed in with discussions and presentations and reviews. The second session is with Hannah Goldstein, and that's called Mashup. And it's looking at the methodology of collage as a way that artists and creative producers make work and think about work. So that session is a bit different because we're working with a DJ and a chef and a dancer. Oh, wow. So it's very interdisciplinary and diverse. Yeah. So these sessions are very different and that's the direction I'm interested in pursuing. Yeah. Taking a small sidestep, the residency program, I can imagine, is very time intensive and there's a lot to organize. What influence has the residency had on your own individual output as an artist? It is extremely time intensive and my time has been compressed even more because for the last four and a half, five years, I've been teaching analog photography oh gosh, okay. <laughs> at uh, Bard College Berlin in Hohenschönhausen, which has been great, but it takes a lot of my time as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I've been able to do a spring session up until now. Yeah. But my work has evolved a lot and has become much more research-based and performance-oriented. Again, going back to this desire for a dialogue and ephemerality, which I'm really interested in, the idea of not making things that stay in the world, but maybe generating an experience where the memory of that experience is what stays. That's really interesting to me as a concept. I started a series 
of performances called Take the Cake, which uh, again references this project I do with Audrey and Chisa Zontag. Mm-hmm. Take the Cake is a lecture performance meets baking show. I don't really know how else to explain it. Um, where I research the historical and at times even colonial background and history of different ingredients that make a cake or that are connected to a specific cake that I've chosen. And I do a performance while I'm simultaneously baking the cake. I'm talking about the history from a feminist post-colonial perspective on these different ingredients that correspond to this baking. So my work has evolved very much in the idea of research and performance and looking at what happens when you have an audience directly in front of you and what those challenges are. I did my first residency in eight years just this past winter. Oh, I did? Yeah, Yeah. which was amazing. I went to Aga Lab in Amsterdam for three months. And I did a project called, well, it was a two-part, it was a performance on the apple tart, which is the Dutch national cake. And I um, made a book, Tart Talk. I invited people to hand write out different apple tart recipes. And then I also interviewed them. And I did a transcription of their interviews in a connected booklet called Conversational Fragments of mm-hmm. Tart Talk. And I was really interested in how one cake can maybe define a culture. Yeah. So this was an example of finally putting time aside for myself and saying, okay, I need to actually reconnect to my own practice. It was really great for me to do that because coming back, it made me rethink elements of Picture Berlin mm-hmm. and what works and what doesn't work, what I can change to make it better for the incoming residents. Having been a resident myself now at a residency, I mean, it was different because I lived there and worked there. Yeah, but this is quite a departure from photographing and working with a camera. Yes. I guess you are incorporating elements of the residency and that it is a kind of a collaborative endeavor. Would this have been, or what influence do you think, having the exchange with the residents and with the faculty, do you think fed into this idea of your performative practice now? Because essentially you've, like you said, you've moved away from creating objects and you're almost curating experiences or you're developing different ways of bringing people together and engaging with art that doesn't involve stuff the way that art normally is. Because what happens with the cake at the end? Do people eat it? Of course. (laughs) Of course people eat it. Yeah, people eat it. And this book was presented during a one-hour performance that it also involved people trying apples and me walking around the room and really using the space and engaging with my audience in a very specific way. I think your question, though, is really a good one. My answer really has to be twofold. I think partly this project is a result of my experience running Picture Berlin and my desire and my recognition in myself that I really enjoy so much conversing and exchanging knowledge with people. That's one thing, because this book wouldn't have been possible without conversations I had with over 40 people. Yeah. But it also came into being because of the work I do with Adrian. Zontag has had a very big impact and we've been doing that project for eight years. So briefly to say what Zontag is, because I I keep (laughs) mentioning it, um, Zontag is a project I started with Adrian in 2012 and we invite an artist to show their work in a private apartment and we make the artist's favorite cake. And we have been doing that project as artists ourselves and we see that work as a social sculpture, a social practices project and uh, we feel very much in keeping with Joseph Boys, the idea that 
that the work isn't complete until the audience arrives and actually eats the cake with the artist who's there. So the artist is always present and the artist has to be from Berlin, not has to be from this city, but based here. needs to be based here. Yeah. I think it's twofold. I think it's partly picture Berlin. I think it's also my my engagement and connection to Zontag. You know, the premise is baking, but it's not about me being a baker and it's not about baking. I mean, I love baking, but that's a side note. I'm using the tool of cake and that's what we do in Zontag as well. We use the tool of the cake as a vehicle for something else. And that's what I'm interested in is how can food specifically be integrated and be used as a tool to kind of harness a conversation or mm-hmm. or different types of conversations that you might not have if the food didn't exist. And that's something I'm really interested in. And I've integrated that into Picture Berlin from the beginning. Oh, how have you integrated yeah. it into Picture Berlin? Food is always an element of Picture Berlin. We have a lot of private dinners together. We have a lot of snacks. <laughs> the walk, which I haven't talked about yet, which is a, another work of mine that's part of Picture Berlin. It's called In Search of the Miraculous. I collaborate with between, it depends each year, five to six different artists. And I invite artists to create a walk that's based wherever they want it to be based in the city. I just ask them to integrate a few things into their walk. It has to be half an hour to 45 minutes long. They have to talk about their practice at some point in the walk. They can talk about whatever they want. Actually, it's totally up to them. And they need to include a snack that's conceptually relevant to what they're talking about. And they need to bring the group to the next artist who's waiting for them. So it's a 12-hour walk that goes throughout the city in different neighborhoods and connects to the city in a very private, personal way that's related to that artist at that time. So each artist has the group for a period of time and then hands the group over to the next artist who then continues and talks about something totally different. Yeah. Yeah. I feel listening to that as well, that a lot of the way that your practice has evolved, it has become a lot more experiential for the audience as well. Yeah. How has the response from audiences been when it is a lot more interactive? For a lot of people, that's kind of a, it's an unusual situation or it's a unique situation and we don't always know how to respond to that. And I think, well, if I reflect on my own experience of the different events that we've held at the gallery as well, definitely when there is more of an exchange, people open up more and they want to engage more and they want to share what they feel about something versus if we just had a normal presentation. Have you always had that in mind or has that come out of doing the residency or is it just something that you've noticed as a recurring theme and thinking this is one of the more important parts rather than just the end result or like you say with an exhibition it's an end point. Enabling a dialogue to continue means that the work or what is created exists beyond the finished piece. I um, noticed that with myself that's what I was saying earlier, this idea of having an exhibition, putting my work up on the wall. Mm -hmm. I think there is a hesitancy for your colleagues and your friends to be honest with you about the work. Of course, someone isn't going to tell you, actually, this really, these images, they don't work together or this, this, I don't know if this color of this frame is really the right or conceptually, I don't really see the links. People aren't necessarily going to say that to you, I find, but I have found over time that The desire for dialoguing is really inherent in people and artists and that at the end of the day, they learn so much about themselves and their own practice, especially in an experience like In Search of the Miraculous. I always say to the incoming residents, In Search of the Miraculous is a very, very important part of the program. It's the first day of the program. It's 12 hours. It's meant to be exhausting. It's meant to kind of overload you. 
It's meant to saturate you completely and thoroughly and make you feel like you can't ingest anything else. It's meant to do all of those things for the reason that I think having an intense experience like that brings you to another place within yourself and with your colleagues that you're with. Oh, you're forced to interact with them. <laughs> you are. You are absolutely forced. And I find that uh, that is always very interesting because that really supports the rest of the week mm-hmm. and how people connect to each other. For me, this is much more satisfying and this is much more, this just brings people to another place. And I, I really enjoy so much helping people get to that place and also sharing what I can offer. I got an email a few years ago from an alum who had done the program three years prior and had said, I'm still unpacking what I got from Picture Berlin. Oh, really? I'm still working on some of the thoughts that I had or some of the exchanges that I had, or I'm still in communication with so-and-so from the group, and I'm still talking with that person. And the the relationships are incredible that come out of it. But I think the work also really changes for people. What I'm really also interested in by showing these different types of platforms is showing people that there are different platforms. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people think this is what art is. This is what art is, but also this is the parameters I'm only allowed to be in because I make photographs. Mm -hmm. I can only stay in this box because I do this. And I'm really interested in sharing other ways of thinking about what it means to make work. In Search of the Miraculous is a lot about photography because each person who does that walk gets a bag. And in the bag, there are a series of numbered envelopes. Each person has a different set of numbered envelopes. And in those envelopes are photographs. Those photographs are usually found, but sometimes they're made by the artist who's talking. And at different times of the day, an artist will say, the guide, artist guide, will Mm -hmm. say, who has envelope 32? And that person, one person will say, I have that. They'll open that. And it's a photograph. And that photograph will be supporting the story or in relationship to what that person is saying at that time. So photography does play a role. Maybe it engages differently. Do you think maybe then this is probably what's missing from a lot of contemporary art nowadays? It does seem to be a bit of a closed loop and a one-sided It's not even an exchange if it's one-sided, just it's more of a monologue than a dialogue. And that by allowing the audience to interact more and at least participate, but also having the artist more involved with the people that they're presenting to, you're not creating the work as much in isolation. The creation of the work is the performance itself almost. And then the feedback and the discussion around that feeds back into what they ultimately made. Absolutely. Is this something that a lot of other people from the residency have taken away and thought, I need to do more? How did you define it before? You said socially active practice or... Socially engaged. Socially engaged. I mean, the States, again, there are MFA programs that Mm. are for social practices. There are a lot of, uh, not a lot, there are artists who are working with this premise It's maybe more defined in the States as a way of thinking about one's practice or how people are making. Yeah, there's specific programs that focus on this, educational programs and artists who are doing a lot. I would say the artist Miranda July Mm -hmm. works in this way on a very large scale. But I wanted to say a few things about what you just said. First, I wanted to say that this idea of the monologue versus the dialogue, I do think that the monologue voice is maybe something that is for a specific audience. And I don't think that the type of work I do necessarily is, I mean, it's not, you can't sell 
my work, really. I mean, you know, you think about Tino Segal or other artists who are working, not to say I'm in the same category as Tino Segal, but just to say that there are artists who are working with ephemerality who it's really hard to monetize that. And I think that there is this very intense kind of wealthy side of the art world or collectors that have a lot of money that want the monologue. They want that one work that they can hang, Mm -hmm. that they can showcase or series of works or whatever. And I think that the dialoguing is maybe not for everyone. And I've always thought that there's multiple art worlds happening simultaneously. I just think that I'm part of one stratosphere of one kind of market that are not even a market because I'm not interested in the monetizing necessarily of what I'm doing. I am very interested in the dialogue of what I'm doing. And then also to to talk about the the monologue and the dialogue, which you brought up as well, I think right now in this pandemic, I think it's forced a lot of artists to rethink that dichotomy and to rethink what it means to have this monologue or to be in that position. And I think that a lot of artists have been doing studio visits in a way or sharing work or sharing their ideas in a new way for them that I think has opened up a conversation in a really interesting way. And I'm quite excited about that, actually. And I think it's been really hard for a lot of people, of course, and it's really hard for so many artists and musicians and actors and people who are involved in the creative production of our world to continue making money, of Mm -hmm. course. But what I do think that comes out of this is a rethinking of how we engage with our audience. And where is our audience now? How do we find our audience? It's even harder. And these questions and issues, I think, are uh, really paramount for right now. Absolutely. I think even not just, well, obviously, the people that are creating the content, but also the different entities that facilitate the content. If you're an institution, if you're a gallery, if you're a museum, even if you're a performance venue, your value or the value that you add to the artists is bringing people into a space, providing a platform. I think what a lot of galleries have come to realize or cause them to have to rethink what they're doing is because if all I am is a, a viewing room, I'm just a shop. All I have are things. Before I had a community, I could do talks, I could do presentations. You had a lot more engagement. But then when you're just online as a gallery, you're not really that different to Amazon or to any other company that really is just distributing objects. And I think that's also caused a lot of people to really think, what is my purpose? But then also, how do I then help the artist generate more value within their work? And if it is doing online sessions in the studio or having online dialogues and bringing different people together, and maybe because we've all been forced into isolation... And we don't have the exchange anymore. We're trying to find it again, or we're looking into different ways to bring that back into our lives because we're, I guess, as social beings, as animals, we are hungry for that because now we don't have it. Definitely. Yeah. I know you mentioned already that the residency has been postponed because of the quarantine. Are you making any new work that responds directly to the quarantine? Yes. I started a project, I believe, on um, April 13th. And it's called Telex. So I live at the corner of Zedenickerstrasse and Gormenstrasse, where Gorman and Corina Strasse meet in Mitte near Rosenthalerplatz. And I'm sort of at the ba- base, I say that very loosely, of a tiny little hill. And um, I was thinking about this idea of dialoguing. And I kept thinking about it. And I had wanted to 
engage with the outside world but didn't know how. And I thought, well, maybe it's good to put a word out into the world to suggest an idea or give people something to maybe meditate on if they chose to look up. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the third floor. So I created a banner. And um, every day since April 13th, I've been writing one word or pinning, I should say, one word onto this metallic magenta fabric banner. And it hangs out of my window. And uh, I change the word every day. So one day English, one day German. And I try to be very minimal about it in the sense that I'm more interested in what other people think as opposed to ranting about what I think. And it's been really, really interesting. So I post it on Instagram, sometimes on Facebook, but it's mostly on Instagram. It's been really, really interesting in the sense that a lot of people come by and photograph it and uh, comment on it. And the dialogue around it has been great. A few weeks back, I guess it was day 21, I posted a word that's a Welsh word Mm -hmm. that is hurraith. And uh, do you know that word? No. It's this idea of having a loving home, having a space where you're loved in a home. A Welsh journalist, no, first it started off with a Welsh photographer photographing it, and Mm -hmm. then a Welsh journalist saw it and contacted me from the Northern Wales newspaper and wrote a piece about it in the Northern Wales newspaper. And it was it was really wonderful. So it's been it's been really amazing, actually, to have this project happening and getting all kinds of different responses and feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You called the project Telex. I was trying to think of a proper name for it. And I was thinking of ticker, like a ticker tape, something that keeps coming. And I was researching ticker and then I came upon a machine called a telex machine. And a telex machine was created in 1926 in Germany. And it was the precursor to the ticker machine. And it was a machine where you could send sort of an instant telegram and it could output 66 words a minute. What's interesting about it is that telex operators were the people who would communicate with each other in different places and they would use very abbreviated ways of communicating with each other. They were the first ones who started off writing, for example, a letter C, U, C, U, L, with an eight. Oh, really? See you later, you know, these abbreviated ways of writing. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who started that. So that's where that history of this shortened mm-hmm. versions of words came from. So I decided to call them the Project Telex. Mm-hmm. And I liked that it was connected to Germany. So therefore, the project will be 66 days long. And I'm on day, I think today is 43, day 43. Yeah. Did you already know the words that you're going to use or do you think of them each day before you put them up? No, I think of them each day. I have many, many, many lists of words. I also take suggestions from people. A lot of people have given me suggestions and I, of course, always give people credit for that. So it's been really nice. I've asked people to suggest words in English or German. So if you have a word. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of one. Yeah. It's been nicer than you've still, despite the quarantine and the shutdown, that you've still found a way to engage with an audience. It's been really, really nice. I've been really excited about it. It's been great. Um, my neighbor who lives in that, on the downstairs uh, below the balcony across the mm-hmm. way, she one day made a response to the banner, which was really great. She also has commented a lot about the different words because she looks at it every day. She has said to me, oh, I really wish you would have more upbeat or silly words because it's sometimes i get a little bit too melancholy (laughs) so not to be melancholy sometimes but 
How have the people in the building responded? They really like it. I'm not friends with all my neighbors, but two of my neighbors are following me on Instagram and they really like it. They make comments a lot. It's really nice. My nine-year-old niece who lives in Berkeley, California, Neela, for a school project has been doing a weekly newsletter. When she started the newsletter, she told me about it and we were talking on FaceTime and I said, oh, you should really do something like spot the difference, you know, like check out differences in a photograph. And she's like, oh, I don't really know what you mean. I said, okay. So Adrian and I did a spot the difference shot for her. And now we do that every week for her. And that's also a, another thing I've been doing here at home and put that on Instagram. It's been really, really fun. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. People I really... think I saw a few of them because they often has interesting outfits. <laughs> um, the outfits are... <laughs> Very interesting and hilarious. We play a lot with stereotypes and gender definitions. So he's up for anything. So it's been re really fun. Yeah. Um, actually, one thing I did want to ask you about, because I know you do this through Picture Berlin, is the field guide book. Oh, yeah. I would like to do it again. The last one I did was a few years ago. I've done three editions of it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money to put out, and I never really recoup the money on it. Oh, okay. I actually really want to turn it into an app. I would love to do that, but I would have to find somebody to program it, and I haven't found that person yet, and also the money to, to do it, which I, I don't have. So that's actually the goal of that. I mean, I always make a handbook for my incoming residents. I did a Kickstarter campaign in 2014 for the five-year anniversary of Picture Berlin, and I created the field guide as one of the rewards for the campaign. So like I said, I've done three editions of it, and I would like to keep it going, but mm. right now I don't have the funds. Are there still copies available? There are. Like, yeah. There are, yeah. They're available on my website, fieldguideberlin.com, mm -hmm. and they're seven yes. euros. I guess if you're an artist in Berlin, this is your book that you need. It's not just for artists. I, I mean, what's interesting is a lot of curators end up using it because there's a lot of resources in there. I mean, simple things like car rentals or crate builders or fabric stores. I mean, a lot of things that curators might need if they're doing more of a DIY install for a show, working with an artist. But it's an amazing resource because it's just, it's just lists. Yeah. lists of things and it's a great resource also if you're coming to the city and you know you're going to be here for a short time or even there's a lot of stuff in there where people who live here for a long time don't know that that yeah. stuff is here so it's it's really good i'll include a link so people okay, know cool. that they can get a coffee great great <laughs> yeah and i i don't know maybe i should mention the zontag book oh okay I guess it was December 2019 we came out with it. We won the Project Space Prize in 2018, and we always knew that we wanted to make a book of the project. So we worked together with Anya Lutz from The Green Box. Green Box was also our publisher, so she was the designer on it. It includes new artworks by 44 artists and their cake recipes and a really lengthy interview by a fellow Australian, Ali Bishop, who did a fantastic job of interviewing Andrean and I about the project. And then there's another Australian, actually, curator, Catherine Nichols, who wrote the introductory text that's really fantastic. And we're really happy about it. And it's available through the Green Box. It's really comprehensive overview of the project. Yeah, I guess it's complete with all the recipes, but then photographs. We were interested in actually making a new platform for the project. So we asked artists that we had worked with in the past to make new work just for the book. We weren't so much interested in in looking at events from the past, we were more interested in thinking about what the project actually is. By doing that, of course, we included a lot of images of various events from the past to kind of give an atmospheric experience of the project. But 
Like I said, the artworks were not those that were shown during those artists' exhibitions or events that they had with us. Yeah. Yeah, we're really happy about how it came out. And the end pages in the beginning and the back are sort of the manifesto of the project. Well, I think probably covered everything. Yeah, so. yeah, great. Thanks for doing this, April. I really Pleasure. enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting Learned me. Learned a lot of new things, so that's always <laughs> nice. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this with you. It's really nice talking. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with April Gertler. At the time of publishing this, 20th of July, there are still some places available for the next round of Picture Berlin. So if you're considering applying, check the website pictureberlin.org for more details. I've also included links in the show notes to the Field Guide Berlin, the Sontag book, as well as April's various social media and other initiatives that we spoke about. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more in the future, you can, of course, subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, where this is hosted, and all good podcast streaming services. As always, I'm open to your comments, suggestions, and feedback to each and every episode of the podcast. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, and through the various channels listed in the podcast description. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you're all keeping safe, staying healthy, and looking out for each other. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.